Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you today. So we're continuing our four-week series called uh, Family, What Would Jesus Say? Special thanks to David and Caleb for the nice job they did the last two weeks on the subject. And today it's my privilege to talk about maximizing singleness. I want to say a few things by way of introduction. First, who is this sermon for? Logical question. It's basically, it's for everybody. But uh, it's especially intended for single adults, 18 years and older, who are unmarried. So 18... 38, 88, this is for you, okay? Some truths about uh, what it means to maximize your singleness from God's word today. But this message is critical for everyone because some of you are younger than that, but you're going to be singles for a while, or some of you will be singles again, perhaps. And all of us have relationships with singles, and our viewpoint, our doctrine, our theology of singleness affects them greatly. For example, if you view singleness as something just to sort of get through or sort of a cross to bear, that's, you're going to communicate that yeah, either directly or indirectly. So we all desperately need a biblical theology of singleness. I readily admit, by the way, that I'm no expert on, on singleness. I was married when I was 23 years old. So uh, <clears throat> I have some experience being single, but that was a long time ago and for a very short period of time. However, through the years, I've counseled many singles as well as many married people, and I have four single daughters right now, a 38-year-old daughter who was married and who's now divorced, much to her displeasure, and a 33-year-old daughter who is single, and then, of course, our 13- and 11-year-old daughters are single. That's a very good thing. <laughs> so <laughs> we also have a 36-year-old son who is happily married, but it hasn't been without challenges, and uh, all of that to say we're not perfect parents and uh, we don't have the perfect family. In fact, I don't think there is any such thing as that because we're all sinners and we all have brokenness that we're learning to work through, right? So singleness, though. Let's talk about that today. Some are young, some are older, some have never been married, some are single again. And some people are married, but they have these areas of life that sort of, they're sort of functionally single. By that I mean uh, they're married, but they have some of the same challenges of uh, singleness just because of life circumstances. And we can't possibly address all of these things, all these nuances today, and that's one of the reasons for all the resources I put on the bottom of your sermon notes today. So if you haven't already, please find those sermon notes and pull them out at, at this time and, or open them up on your uh, LC3 app and also find a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians 7. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as we begin with a biblical theology of singleness. The Bible gives us much information about what it means to be a single adult living without marriage. And there's no better place in all of God's word to see this than 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And what Paul gives us here is four advantages of being single. He says some people are called to marriage, some people are called to singleness, and there's some benefits that sometimes we don't think about of being single. Here's four practical advantages that Paul kind of gives to us in this passage. And the first one is that singles are spared many worldly troubles. Paul's going to say that in verses 25 to 28. So most of 1 Corinthians 7 is talking about being single. It's also talking about marriage, but there's actually more verses about singleness than marriage here. And Paul talks to those who've never been married, to those who want to be married, 
to those who want to get married again. Well, let's begin in verse 25. 1 Corinthians 7, 25. He begins, now concerning the betrothed, the word is virgins, now concerning virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. A couple of things to set it up here. You might be, hear that and think to yourself, well, I don't need to pay much attention to this because Paul's just giving his opinion here. The word is judgment. I give my judgment. And I want to help you with that because what Paul is saying is when Jesus was on the earth, he didn't discuss what I'm getting ready to say to you. But I'm going to discuss it now, okay? In other words, there's no record in the Gospels of anything on this subject of what he's going to say. But of course, 1 Corinthians is part of the inspired word of God. And so it's authoritative. It's, Paul says this is trustworthy. It's inspired. Uh, verse 25 begins, now concerning the betrothed. And that, those words now concerning tells us he's responding to their questions. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, you know he's responding there to many questions they had written and asked him about. Here he responds to questions about singleness and marriage. Next chapter, he's going to talk to them about their questions about food offered to idols. When he gets to chapter 12, he's going to answer their questions about spiritual gifts. But here it's about marriage and singleness. And then that word betrothed, as I said, it's the word, in the Greek word, it means simply virgins. In that culture, if you were unmarried, you were not sexually active. The two just went together. And so he says, I say these things to those of you who are virgins, to those of you who are unmarried. And he's referring to all unmarried men and women, although sometimes he singles out one or the other. And here's what Paul says to them beginning in verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. And yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. In other words, Paul says, especially to singles, he's saying don't just go running after a spouse. He's not discouraging healthy relationships. He's not discouraging friendships. He's warning against the problem of just going out. I, I, I just got to find somebody to get married. He's saying, don't go running after a wife, and if you're married, don't try to get rid of a wife, right? And so what he's saying is there's problems either way, and sometimes we forget that. Whether you're single or you're married, there's concerns, there's problems. Notice that word bound in verse 27. See, if you're married, the Bible says you are bound. And if you're single, the Bible says that you are celibate. And of course, both of those have challenges. He says, on the married side, you're bound. That word literally means fastened with chains. If you are married, you are handcuffed, you could put it. In other words, you're bound to your mate. He later says in verse 32, if you're single, you're free from anxieties, from concerns. And we'll get to that and explain that in a few minutes. And so Paul says the benefit of singleness is freedom, and he says marriage, in some ways, has some handcuffs that go with it. You're bound. And so he's highlighting some of the positives and negatives here. And what I've noticed over the years as a pastor is that people who are single sometimes only see the negatives of being single, and people who are married 
sometimes sort of focus on the negatives of being married. As someone said, it kind of like flies on a window screen. Those on the inside want to get out, and those on the outside want to get in. <laughs> so here's your choice, as only Dr. Tony Evans can put it. He said, you can have slavery, slavery with sex or celibacy with freedom. Those are your options. Those are your choices, end quote. Again, what Paul is saying in this chapter is I want singles to stop and understand that there's some benefits to being single. Don't lose sight of that. Many singles, Christians, are missing out on the glory of being single because they're just so focused on wanting to be married. Now, it sure seems a little puzzling when we read this because we also know that, that Paul wrote other places about marriage. For example, in, first, or in Ephesians 5, Paul has this very exalted view of marriage where he talks about it being a picture of Christ's relationship with his people, right? He says it's beautiful, it's, it's powerful, a powerful thing. He makes a very big deal about marriage there. It's a very high view, but here Paul says, don't look for a wife. What's, what's that about? We need to understand what he's saying. By the way, I want you to understand as I say these things, it might sound strange to you, I am a happily married man, okay? So <laughs> I, I'm not saying it's always easy, it's not. It's hard work. In fact, any time you put two selfish people together, closely together, that's a recipe for conflict, isn't it? And we've had to work through uh, many things. And by the grace of God, and only by the grace of God, we're still together and happily married today. But it's hard, very hard work at times. But here's what Paul's saying here in this text. There are some great advantages to being single. Don't miss out on these things. And don't waste time waiting to see if God has marriage in your future or not. Long time ago, we were flying to uh, Dallas, Texas, I believe was our destination. Uh, coming from Portland, flying to, to Dallas during seminary days, and uh, we, we arrived at the Dallas area, but because, I think it was because of a storm or something, they put us into a holding pattern. If you've flown much, you know probably know what that's like, and so we're flying around the Dallas-Fort Worth area in a holding pattern, around in a circle for quite a while, and I, and I was getting frustrated. I mean, we've been up in the air for three and a half, four hours already, and I was getting annoyed because I was done with it, okay? So, and I wanted that plane to land, but we were placed in this holding pattern for a time, and I was frustrated because I was ready to land. My, what I'm saying is many singles are sort of saying... Lord, I feel like I'm in this holding pattern. I just need you to land this plane, please. I need you to find me a husband. I need you to find me a wife. But the thing to do when you're a holding pattern, I found out, is to take out some work to do and keep yourself occupied while you're waiting for the holding pattern to, to come to an end. Occupy yourself because you have absolutely no control over when that's going to be over. There might be some private conversations going on between the pilot and the tower, but you're not part of that as a passenger. They might bring you in on some updates from time to time, but most of the time as a passenger, our job is just to sit there and wait, right? You've been there. If you've been there, you know what I mean. And so I had a choice. I could sit there and I could wait frustrated, or I could use my time and maximize my time since I had no control whatsoever about what was going on. 
being in this holding pattern. And I want to say to our single friends, I have no, no idea how long it will be before God addresses your singleness. What I do know is that he expects you not to waste your time while you're waiting. All right? He wants you to wait upon him, to have faith in him, in the context of maximizing your time, your singleness in the Lord. And to do that, you need a biblical theology of singlehood. Let's continue in this first section. I want to read verse 28 to you again. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman or a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. If I could summarize or paraphrase Paul, what he's saying here, he says, when you get married, you're going to be in trouble. He says, I'm trying to spare you some of that. There can be trouble, right? Okay, Because th- what you think you're going to get on the front end isn't necessarily what you wind up with every day. Right? Okay? So Paul says, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now, there's different opinions as to exactly what kind of troubles he's speaking of here. Some of this might have to do with a unique situation at that time in church history, maybe persecution going on, maybe a famine that was going on. But it's also fair to say that there's just troubles of two people learning to live together in harmony. That creates its own set of problems. And this word that he picked, the word trouble, means pressed together or under pressure. All relationships have troubles from time to time, and the closer the relationship, the greater the potential for trouble. Marriage involves pressing two fallen people together in intimacy into an intimate life, that, and that inevitably leads to conflict. And Paul is saying that the troubles of being married often exceed the troubles of being single. And I think that the divorce rate today certainly is a testimony that that's so. Again, Paul says, verse 28, if you're married, you haven't sinned, and yet I'm trying to spare you of some problems, some troubles, from the extra responsibility, from the extra burden, from the extra pressures, from the extra difficulties that come from married life. And so Paul wants singles to see... There are some benefits, some advantages of being single. And he doesn't want them to do what he calls just go out and seek a wife. See that at the end of verse 27? He says, do not seek a wife. That's advantage number one. Singles are spared many worldly troubles. And then he continues, verse 29, with a second advantage, and that is that singles are better able to maintain an eternal perspective. And what we see here is this. If you're a frustrated single, that it's very possible that you have a, a wrong view of time and eternity. Paul says, I don't want you to lose sight of heaven because you're trying to maximize life here on earth. Because if you have a worldly perspective, you will definitely be a frustrated single. So here's what Paul says beginning in verse 29. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, 
and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Here's the point. For the present form of this world is passing away. That's a little confusing, so let's unpack that. Paul's developing a sophisticated kingdom theology here. See, the Jews believed that when the Messiah came, that he was going to establish this brand new, perfect world order. And in this new world, there would be no more suffering and no more pain and no more death. Everything was going to be perfect, right? So that was their expectation of what would happen when Messiah came. But what Jesus taught and what Paul taught and what we see throughout Scripture is that when Jesus brought the kingdom, he didn't come just once, but he came twice. The first time he came in weakness, and the second time in power. He will, he will come in power. The first time he came as the suffering servant of God, the second time in the future he's going to come as our victorious king. The first time he came to initiate the kingdom of God, but the second time when he comes back, he's going to bring it in its fullness. And what that means is that today we're living in this in-between age, the age of the Gentiles, the dispensation of grace, we call it. And we still have to deal with suffering and pain and all this brokenness now. And so we live in this age of anticipation. We're awaiting the coming of Jesus Christ when everything's going to be made right, made perfect. We live in this time between the first and the second advent of Messiah. And how we are to live during this age, Paul puts here in very practical terms. What this means is we do marry. We do have jobs. We do buy and sell. We do grieve and mourn. We do rejoice and celebrate. But we always do these things with an eye toward eternity. See, God is going to give you the ultimate wealth. So right now, whether you have money or not isn't the biggest thing. If you have it, great, but don't get too attached to it. And if you don't have it, don't be too upset because it's not real wealth anyway. You see what he's doing? It sounds a little strange at first. Verse 30, he says, go ahead and mourn. But don't overdo it because everything is going to be made right someday soon. This life is short. There's a new day coming, and that's going to last for all of eternity. So live for that day. Live in light of that day. Go ahead and rejoice, but don't overdo it. Because this life here is nothing like what's coming when Christ comes back for us. So this life will never completely satisfy our, life, our souls, our hearts. And then he applies it to singleness and he marriage. So what he's saying is the ultimate family is future. The ultimate marriage is future. The ultimate wedding is in the future. The wedding supper of the Lamb. All the deepest desires that we have for love and for intimacy and for security and acceptance and unity, all of that is going to be satisfied that day. And no earthly family and no earthly marriage can be anything but a foretaste of that day. It can be great, don't misunderstand me, but it's still just a foretaste. It's a preview of what's coming. And so if you don't have a spouse or a family here, don't be too upset about that. 
And if you do have a family, don't be too elated. Don't put too much of your hope in that. In other words, we have to constantly keep this in view and remind ourselves, don't live like this life is all there is, because it's not. And that viewpoint changes everything, or helps a lot. And so Paul says, if you're married, you aren't sinning. And he also says, if you aren't married, you aren't a second-class citizen. In fact, understand there's advantages to that. The first advantage of being single is that singles are spared many worldly troubles. The second advantage is that they're better able to maintain that eternal kingdom perspective. And third, he wants you to get busy and serve the Lord. Watch this beginning in verse 32. And this is the third one. Singles have fewer distractions from serving Christ. And so Paul's going to make a point here, the most important point for, to singles that you might ever want to hear. You might not even like what he says here, but it has the power to change everything about how you view singleness. Let's pick it up at verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about or concerned about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Key phrase, your undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul says that a married person, by the very nature of being married, is divided. They have split loyalties. A married person wants to please their spouse, of course, and they also, if they're believers, want to please God. And they have to sort of work it out between those two. There's a tension there that they have to be constantly figuring out. They are divided. The nature of marriage naturally creates some distraction from serving God. Okay, And Paul says that a single Christian therefore is undivided, undistracted in their service to God. And one reason why so many singles, I think, are frustrated is that they're divided when they shouldn't be. See, you aren't supposed to be worried about a husband until God gives you one. And you aren't supposed to be worried about a wife until God gives you one. But some... Singles are sort of running after a spouse, and that means you're distracted from what God wants you to be focused on in your singleness. God hasn't given you a spouse yet. Don't waste a lot of time thinking about it. That just leads to frustration. Let God worry about bringing the right person along at the right time while you focus yourself on serving him. God wants you to maximize your time for the advancement of his kingdom. And you aren't to let seeking a spouse dominate you and distract you. Okay, just a few examples that come to mind. I can think of many, but we have uh, numerous single missionaries that we support as a church that are doing fantastic things for the Lord out on the mission field. And we have uh, numerous singles leading ministries and involved in ministries here at Lake City. And, of course, the Apostle Paul himself is a great example. Much of the New Testament was written by him, a single Christian, 
I think one of the reasons that God was able to use Paul so greatly is because he wasn't distracted. He was able to be so devoted to God. Again, one of the reasons singles get frustrated is because they haven't learned this lesson. They're more focused on the hunt. And therefore, they just feel like they're sort of in this holding pattern, and it's frustrating. This is huge. The main thing God wants from singles is undivided devotion to him. To make him first in your life. To devote yourselves to serving him. And the question is, how are you doing with that today? If you're single, how are you doing with that? That's the third advantage of singleness. Singles have fewer distractions to serving Christ. And here's the fourth advantage. Number four, singles are still free to marry in the Lord. If God leads, there's still the freedom to go ahead and get married. Singles aren't bound by their condition, even if they've been that way for a while, because God may still have a plan for them to marry someday. So let's pick it up at verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Note that word betrothed again. Remember, that's the word virgin, literally. Some translations add the word daughter here to try to make sense of this, so it's a little confusing. There's two possible understandings here. This may refer to fathers who were making decisions for their unmarried daughters. Remember that in this culture, fathers arranged marriages for their children. And so Paul might be saying to fathers, you know, go ahead and let your daughters get married. There's, that, there's no problem with that. That's not a sin. Even though the Lord may be coming back soon and even though eternity is the real thing, go ahead and let them get married. But it could also just refer to a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship here. And if it's a boyfriend-girlfriend situation that he's talking about, if things are, what he's saying is this, if things are getting hot and you're having a hard time keeping your girlfriend a virgin, then either marry her or break up with her, but don't mess her up. Don't dishonor God by having sex with her before marriage. And then Paul comes to his final point in the last couple of verses. Look at verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord. So Paul reiterates the truth here, that if you're married, you're bound until your husband dies. Now, a spouse can die in one of two ways, by the way. They can die physically, but they can also die spiritually by giving grounds for divorce. Jesus spoke about grounds for divorce in Matthew 19. In the case, he used the word there, porneia, he said, is grounds for divorce. That word refers to sort of a broad range of sexual sins, including ongoing adultery without repentance. And Paul himself spoke about grounds for divorce here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in the first half of the chapter, which we didn't look at. And there he talks about the case of an unbelieving spouse abandoning the believing, their believing spouse. And that happened a lot in this culture that we're reading about, 1 Corinthians here. Two believers would get married, 
excuse me, two unbelievers would get married and then one of them would become a Christian and the unbeliever didn't want anything to do with them anymore. And what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7.15 is, let them go in peace. But the point Paul's making here is if you're, if you're married, you're bound to your spouse until they die. And then you're free to remarry, but only in the Lord. Only, in other words, marry another believer. Only in the Lord. That talks about a spiritual relationship. That's the most important thing that you need to have in common in a marriage, that spiritual connection. And so Paul says, only marry another believer. And then let's look at the last verse. Verse 40 says, Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. The widow, the widower is happier to remain a single, is what he's saying here. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Now watch this. Paul says, in his judgment, that widower or widower is happier to stay single. He's not saying this is a command from the Lord. In fact, he's saying this is just my judgment about it. But he says it is informed by the, by the Spirit of God. And this is a generalization that he's giving. Obviously, there's exceptions to that truism. For example, my own dad and my mother-in-law are exceptions to it. They were both widowed, and they were later happily remarried. And here's what I think the point is of this last verse. He's saying, don't, if, if you lose a spouse, don't just automatically assume that remarriage is going to be the best thing for you. Don't just go running after another mate. Stop and ask God what his will is for you. He says there's nothing wrong with getting married or even remarried when the circumstances permit, but people should really consider remaining single because of the advantages to that. So listen, don't consider being single a second-class condition. Paul says it's a first-class condition. It's not a lower condition, it's a privileged position. There are many advantages of being single, is what he says. And so here's our theology of singleness from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now I want to consider some practical implications next, all right? Some implications of these truths we've just seen. Some of these implications are more for singles. In fact, most of them are, but we all need to understand them. And some of them are for the church, our church as a whole. So six implications. Here's number one. Make sure your identity is in Christ and not in your condition. So Paul speaks here about what he calls two conditions, singleness and marriage. He says God calls some to marriage, God calls some to be single, but that isn't your real identity. Your identity is as a child of God. God doesn't see you as single, he doesn't see you as divorced or remarried. God sees us all as his beloved children. Isn't that beautiful? So let your focus be on your relationship to him and serving him with your life. Second, don't waste your time while waiting for marriage. If you're single and you don't know if you're going to get married or not, don't waste that period of time. The Bible teaches us that this life is short and afterwards comes the judgment. And so live your life in light of that day and don't get frustrated if God has you in a holding pattern right now. Instead, develop your relationship with him and develop friendships with other believers and keep busy and live a productive life for him. Remember that without the responsibilities of marriage, you have some more discretional time. Invest it 
for the Lord. Don't waste it. And by the way, one of the ways that I would encourage you to do this if you haven't completed your education already is to focus on your, your education. And we've just recently partnered with Southeastern University, a fantastic Christian university, to provide first-class Christian education for people in our church family at an unbeatable price. And we have a table set up down in the foyer, down by the uh, foyer doors, with a representative from Southeastern University to help answer your questions. In fact, it's our own Peter Kerr. Peter's on the back wall waving at us right now. Okay. Thanks, Peter, for being down there, all the services. I want to encourage you to stop by and ask Peter some questions. This might relate to you. It might relate to your children or to a family member. It might relate to a friend of yours who's trying to figure out what to do for education or their career path, whatever it is. And also part of what we've arranged is what we call a ministry internship. So there's an opportunity also to get credit for being in a ministry internship position in our church and being mentored by someone on our pastoral staff. And we would be excited to talk to you about that and consider that possibility with you as well. So check that out and talk to Peter after the service. Here's number three. Focus on serving Christ with undivided devotion. This is big. This is the main thing God says he wants from singles is their undivided devotion to him. Question, how are you doing with that? Does that describe, singles, does that describe your life today? If not, what needs to change to line up with that? Number four, you may need to get support from your church family if you're thinking about marriage. One of the functions of fathers with their daughters that's alluded to here in 1 Corinthians 7 is the protecting role. Fathers in biblical times put this covering over their family, including their daughters, and protected them. It's where we get the concept of fathers giving permission for daughters to marry. Every woman is supposed to have that covering. And the natural covering would be her father, assuming the father's alive and involved in her life and taking responsibility for her well-being. But let's say you're a woman and you don't have a father. Paul says in chapter 4, I'm your father. So the church should be acting as a covering, so to speak, particularly for single women, to hold men responsible, to ask them the hard questions, to give godly counsel to ladies who don't have involved parents particularly for single women, to make sure they don't get ripped off by some smooth-talking man. So ladies, when it's time for you to get married, find a father. That is, find a spiritually responsible older man in the church if you don't have a biological father who is spiritual and doing that for you. Ladies, don't be hesitant to ask. We'd love to help with that support and guidance. Number five, your spiritual family is your eternal and ultimate family, so invest deeply in church family. One of the factors Paul bases his reasoning on is the theology of the kingdom. And he reminds us here that in God's kingdom, the ultimate family is yet in the future. No earthly family, no earthly relationship can possibly meet all your needs. It can be great, don't misunderstand, but it's still just a foretaste. And if you don't have a spouse or family here, don't be too upset. And if you do have a family, don't put too much of your hope there. 
Instead, God wants you to and wants me to invest deeply in our spiritual and eternal family. Finally, number six, to, to the church as a whole, be intentional to welcome and include singles in your friendships and activities. We all miss out otherwise. Singles miss out from the fellowship and the input that they need and the support they need, and married folks, we miss out from their friendship and from the wisdom that they bring. We do a fairly good job with this as a church family. It's one of the things we emphasize. It's part of being in small groups together and intergenerational groups and singles and marrieds together, but there's always room for growth. And so I want to encourage us, I encourage you, beloved, today, be intentional to be in relationship and to be involved with singles and with marrieds. That's what it means in part to be the family of God. Finally, there's that resource section on the bottom of your notes. It looks something like this. I won't read through that, but I do want to highlight two of my favorite preachers, Tony Evans and Tim Keller, who I've referred to greatly in this message. And then also the last one, that book for uh, parents of single, single adults. It's called You Never Stop Being a Parent. Next week, there's a class being taught by Pastor David and Pastor Rich for five weeks through this book. So I would encourage you, parents of single adults, to uh, consider that. Check that out. All right, let's pray. Bow with me, please. Father God, we thank you for your love and your care for us, and we thank you for the amazing gift of the family of God. God, you have blessed us so much. And we also thank you for the, the gift of singleness and the gift of marriage. God, help us to think biblically about these things. Help us not to be afraid of being countercultural in these areas, to line up our lives with your divine plan. And I pray for our singles particularly today that you'd give them contentment while they wait to discover your will and your plans. Give them purity. Help them not to waste their time running after a spouse, but to find great freedom and joy through undistracted devotion to you. God, bless them greatly, we pray. And then, Father, we thank you again for your grace. We thank you for your forgiveness. God, we confess we're broken people. We need your grace and forgiveness. And as we come to your table now, God, would you uh, just make that very alive to us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.